1: Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. All right. Taping this episode, of enough about me on Tuesday morning, February the 12th. 12th birthday for Catherine Minahan. Uh, Alan Seppenwall, Rolling Stone. A uh, television critic who's been on a couple times before will join me in a few minutes. His book, The Sopranos Sessions, which I really enjoyed. Uh, it goes episode by episode through The Sopranos. Has a long seven-part interview with David Chase, the show's creator. Where they get, I mean, if you're a Sopranos fan, which I am a huge Sopranos fan, uh, <clears throat> you have to get it. Tremendous. Excellent. Stephen Walls you know, and, and Matt uh, Seitz, who we wrote the book with, they do a great job. I've had them on a few times before. So we'll talk about The Sopranos and a little bit about what's going on with television today. Uh, with Alan in 10, or 50, yeah, 10 minutes or so. I just wanted to check in real quick, give you some updates. Uh, I had the flu, horrible fucking case of the flu, uh, <clears throat> toward the end of the week last, well, two weeks ago, whatever, in Atlanta. I was sick for like five, six days. I still have a little bit of you know cough or whatever, but I feel much, much, much better. I think it was Goodell after running into Goodell. My Periscope feedback was uh, obviously tremendous, as it should have been. Unbelievable performance on Periscope. Uh had fun down in Atlanta. Not. Sure, I'll be invited uh, by the National Football League to participate in Radio Row and media events next year. I'd say that's up in the air right now, uh, as we speak. But I, I had a good time. Uh, I was by myself, which was weird, <coughs> um, but you know, got through it. Um, from a show perspective, uh, update: you know, we're still targeting March. Uh, the negotiations for studio space is going back and forth. My guess is we're going to have a producer. I'm taping this Tuesday. By the time we're on the air, this is posted Thursday. I'm going to guess we're going to have an actual producer. We'll announce that. Uh, and we continue to move forward. I, I, it's, it's a slow process and frustrating to me. I was on a conference call yesterday, and I expressed some frustration. Uh, and, but I understand it's going to take a while. You're negotiating for studio space. You're negotiating with uh, excuse me with um, you know potential co-hosts, with producers. You're trying to figure out when it's going to be. You're trying to figure out where it's going to be. You're trying to figure out who you're going to sell it to. You're trying to close deals with clients, which we're doing right now. Trying to figure out what you know when the commercial breaks are going to be. You know it's not <clears throat> like you know when I left and jumped in with Jerry and you're good to go and everything's already the template's are already set in the way you go. Here it's different in that you're starting something totally new. And I I understand. I get a lot of when I tweet something out a lot of feedback from people saying just start the show already. I believe me. I tell you, I sympathize with that. I'm ready to go as well. I am really eager and excited to start doing a radio show, which is what it is, and that's something else that we've continued to fail at. I think. Uh, cause I'll run into people all the time happened a few times yesterday. We say, when's the podcast start? Well, it's not a podcast. It's a radio show. You can listen to it, in, I guess, in podcast form, but it's going to be a radio show. That is a failure of me. And, and, and I guess the other people, uh, at radio.com as well, um, to articulate that, but it's going to start, I think, I, I hope God, I hope in, in the first couple of weeks in March, because I am really a board, uh, and be eager to get going, <clears throat> um, and that's really it. From from, there's not. I mean, we're kind of ready to go. I think once we have the studio space sort of locked in, um, I think we're going to be. You know, we'll do some test shows. We'll make sure everyone's comfortable, um, and we'll be off to the races. I hope, and I think if we get that studio space here in the next week or two, then you know we're like I said, we're kind of you know push and play and and, and off to the races. Um, <clears throat> um, what else? When I was down there in Atlanta, not you know not much else. I very little interaction with the old guys um you know said hello whatever kind of moved M- moving on as i think they are as well and i i think they're doing the best they can i saw muck got a new contract i'm actually i, I talked to him I actually happy, really happy for him good guy i'm glad that my mental illness and my own struggles and battles with the red Sox led to him some financial uh help for him that's fantastic that's what i'm here for um but yeah no other than that i think we're, i think we're good to go um and you know i'll be periscoping away you know i'll, be, I'll give you some updates um, the show I think is going to be I think just talking to people yesterday I think ten to one is going to be I tweeted out last week. Do you think nine a.m. or ten a.m. And it was mixed. I you know, some said you know nine some said ten some said six a.m. Some said all day. I think it's going to be ten a.m. It seems to be the spot that everybody is landing on. Um, it makes most sense I guess from a streaming perspective. People are already at work. They've put an hour to work. They're in their seats. They're ready to kind of step away or they're you know even the lunch hour they can go and listen to it. So that's fine with me. So I'm going to I'd guess right now 10 to 12 with maybe an hour dumped later uh, on in the day, a podcast hour later in the day, or maybe 10 to 1. Um, but I think that's that's definitely what we're looking at right now. Is a, I would say pretty firm 10 a.m. start. So get ready for that. Uh, other than that, you know, I, I, there's not a lot more updates other than we're just kind of waiting. I, and I stay out of these negotiations because, A, I would get frustrated and fuck them up. And, B, I don't have a real knowledge of what, you know, I don't know what, to to, you rent a space out for for x amount you know i i wouldn't pretend to have an idea uh so i'll let the people who have done that in the past do it i'm sure they'll come to some conclusion reasonable conclusion i would hope these are slightly reasonable people on both sides so i think we'll come to some agreement and then we'll be off to the races and uh and that's you know going to be interesting it's going to be interesting to actually start and do a show and as opposed to talking about doing a show and speculating and talking and arguing and you know trying to get a producer and trying to figure out what a segment is and trying to get sound and trying to figure out what will work and what won't work and trying to make it so that the audience already lo- knows who I am, will be familiar with it, but also people who don't listen will be okay with it. There's a sort of constant battle and a lot of things in my head, and I just want to get out and start talking and, and get on the air and get going. And I think that's going to be, I think, sooner rather than later. I have a date in mind. I hope we hit it. If we don't, I'm going to try my best not to lose my shit because I don't think anything beneficial comes from that. So I'm doing the best I can here. Uh, and I appreciate, A, the loyalty has been unbelievable uh, from the listeners. Incredible. Um, and the patience because, you know, I mean, I'm sure that a lot of people are like, well, you know, just fucking do the show already. Enough, enough questions, enough speculating, enough. Just, just do a, it's not that hard. Do a show. And I get that because I would feel the same way. But it's a little trickier than that. A little, not a lot. Just a little trickier than that. But we'll get there. Uh, so I'll probably do one here, a podcast. I'll probably do an update podcast next week. Uh, just to let you guys know what's going on with that, cause I think we'll have some news, nothing crazy, but some news I think here in the next week. And then we'll do another, uh, podcast update in that. So, uh, that's really having that right now. Alan Seppenwall, is writer of Soprano sessions is the book. I encourage you to get it. Uh, my conversation with Alan uh, begins now. All right. So I have Alan Seppenwall here, I think for the third time on the, uh, on the podcast the book is *The soprano sessions uh which i got alan in the first run before this this book is was you know so wild literally i got it at the Trident bookstores uh bookstores in boston and they told me that it was the last copy available in the city at the time I and mean, that's this is madness right
0: yeah it turns out you know there's still uh interest in the sopranos 20 years later which has been gratifying to see
1: what do you and, and I mean? Listen, uh, so I I was a huge fan of The Sopranos, essentially from the start, and I know you know you were writing about it from the start. What separates it from even you know, uh, uh, even the Breaking Bad's, even the Wires, even the Mad Men's? What Lost? Pick your, your great drama. Is it just simply that it was first that it's the best? I mean, what what is the enduring legacy? Uh, first of all, do you agree with the premise that, that its legacy sort of looms larger than all the rest of those? And if you do, why?
0: I would agree it does. Part of it is because it was first. A lot of these shows simply would not exist without the success of The Sopranos um, because it it taught TV that it could be very different than what everyone had thought it was for 50 years. So you wouldn't have Breaking Bad, you wouldn't have Bad Men, you wouldn't have a lot of these shows. But also, uh, one of the things that was most apparent to me when I went back and I rewatched the entire series to write the book was. The shows that came after it were often more consistent. You know, they told stories in a more satisfying fashion, all of that. But when The Sopranos was good, when it was really, you know, granular about the state of Tony Soprano's soul or Dr. Melfi or Carmela, or whatever, at its best moments, it went to a level that none of the shows that have come after it quite get close to, as much as I love all of those.
1: And isn't that... Well, I guess, so I'd ask you in, in, in the book, so the book essentially goes, and I, I don't know if you'd agree or not, so I had you on before when you did your, the the you know, the, the, the best television shows ever, and the Breaking Bad stuff, yeah. you'd, you'd agree that this is a book, at least this is the way I'm reading anyway, like, I'll just pick up a, a chapter and, and read an episode here or there, you don't need to read it, you know, uh, A to Z, cover to cover, you know, in a row, right, I mean, you can just jump around.
0: Yes, exactly. There's yeah. essays on every episode. There's a new series of interviews with David Chase. Yeah, which is you great. Know, you certainly could keep it, you know, on the couch with you as you're binging the right. series all over again and read each chapter as you go along. But you don't have to if you just want. If you're in a mood to read about Pine Barrens, you can go and you can read about Pine Barrens.
1: It's funny. I was going to say for some reason, even for me, who you know is a huge fan of the show, it does seem like Pine. If you ask uh, a Sopranos fan what the best episode ever is, the most memorable one, for some reason, I think people still circle around my favorite episode is the one where they whack pussy at the end of season two i just think that's that's my favorite sopranos episode just because i had never felt like that ever watching a tv show before but for some reason the pine barrens episode is still the one that people circle around the most i think
0: why it's the most fun episode it is the easiest one to show to somebody who's never seen the sopranos before you know matt zeller my co-author calls it the gateway drug for the sopranos so it's just a really satisfying episode in a way that a lot of the others are kind of culminations of different things or setting up different things this one mostly stands alone even though there's a lot of stuff in there with Tony and Gloria Trillo but you could just sort of watch Polly and Christopher be lost in the pine barrens and you know just enjoy that and it plays spectacularly well every time you do it
1: how i mean it's the answer is obvious but i mean so you know would, would you have this career you had would you be at Rolling Stone today would you have written this book if Stevie Van Zant or David, uh, I always forget the guy's name, who played Richie Aprile, uh, David, uh, David um, Proval or Anthony LaPaglia, if they had played Tony Soprano, you probably wouldn't be at Rolling Stone today, as dumb as that sounds, or this book wouldn't be out, or television would be, there'd be, no, may be there be may be no Mad Men or, or shows on today. It's kind of, it's sort of that simple, isn't it?
0: Uh, pretty much. The, it's been become sort of this common thing since the show ended. To talk about some kind of TV drama acting Mount Rushmore, and you put Gandolfini on it, and you put John Hamm on it, and you put Brian Cranston on it, and you put Elizabeth Moss on it, something like that, and say, all right, these people are all more or less along the same level. And I went back and I rewatched the whole show, and no, Gandolfini gets his own mountain.
1: It's incredible. That's He's... how great
0: he is. Even compared to all of these spectacular performances, is the singular best piece of acting that TV has ever had. It's just. It's so good and also so sad to look at it now because he's not here anymore. And, you know, you look at what he was capable of and you think about all we've been robbed of since then.
1: Kind of, it's sort of the television version for me of Philip Seymour Hoffman in that, you know, you wonder what that second act of his career, age 50 to 70, would be like. And Gandolfini, I remember when the Sopranos' trailer was on HBO and, you know, the title's weird. Everyone's talked about that. You know what's going on, but I knew Gandolfini a little bit from Crimson Tide. And he was in the Andy Garcia movie that Sidney Lumet directed, Night Falls on Manhattan. And he was in Get Shorty. And I thought, boy, this is strange casting. I don't think this is going to work. But the minute you see the pilot, you think this is, you know, you know you're on a ride with this guy. And what's interesting about the first season, when you go back and watch it now, you got to watch it again. The first season tonally feels so different from almost any other season of the show. It's a little lighter. He's a little more likable. You know, it's a lot more family stuff. There's an episode with a soccer coach, stuff like that. It seems to me, and you talked about this conversation with Chase. I guess is the question I was going to get to. Is it seems to me that David Chase didn't like the fact that Tony Soprano was so likable. Is is that right?
0: That's certainly a part of it. I think he, one of his great frustrations throughout the entire run of the show, was encountering people who were in the tank for Tony, for Pauly, for Big Pussy. Hard not to though. All these, yeah, all these very bad people, you know, who he had sort of inadvertently made really likable and charming in different ways. And so as the show went along, he made their bad behavior worse. So Even when you go into season two, suddenly, instead of it being a lot of mob-on-mob violence, you start seeing them, like, mugging people, carjacking people. You know, he ruins his buddy's, you know, sporting goods business because he gets into debt with him. There's a lot more, you know, civilian impact there, and it just, for each season... It gets progressively worse in this attempt to make the audience recognize you're rooting for the bad guy, and it never entirely took, you know, I would still run into people who talked about, you know, Tony's just providing for his family. It, it was really amazing how deep the Stockholm Syndrome ran with that show.
1: But it's interesting, even the guy like Syl, right, who at the beginning is kind of wacky, he's likable, you like him, but then he's, you know, dragging Tracy around, he kills Adriana, like, you know, you forget, you, you Junior the same, these are like, you forget because you get so lost in it and you like them. These are horrible people.
0: They really are, and and I think part of it is when you had shows before that had bad guys in them, there was always some kind of corresponding good guy figure who was at least the co-lead, if not the actual main character. And Sopranos really didn't have that. You'd see the FBI now and then, but they were mostly inept and they were pretty minor. Dr. Melfi was a relatively good person, but she was you know, only involved to a point in what Tony was doing. So there was nobody you could look at and say, you know, oh, you know, J.R. Ewing's fun, but, like, ultimately I'm rooting for Bobby. There was none of that. You were rooting for these people because there was no other choice.
1: Did you find, and I found this anyway, I'd be curious to to hear your take on it. Did you find the Melfi stuff as the series went on to be less interesting? Because I sort of did. You found, is the mafia intrigue and the palace stuff and the battles went on, when you went to Melfi's office, it felt almost like by the time season four or five rolled around, like it was almost like forced in there because it already existed before. It felt less, I don't know, important to me. It felt really important seasons one and two, and then less as the series went on.
0: Chase even admitted to that when we did this long series of interviews with him for the book, that at a certain point, he just liked having Lorraine Bracco on the show and he liked being able to write those scenes, but there was no real dramatic purpose for it after a while. And Tony comments on that in some of the later seasons. Look, you know, he says, you know, this is just an oasis in my week, I like hanging out with you and then by the end he has Melfi realize, you know, she has not only not been helping him, she's been making him worse. And so she fires him as a patient. I will say though that I wound up liking Lorraine Bracco's performance a lot more this time than I did you know, 20 years ago when I found her one of the weaker links in the cast, and I realized just how mistaken I was and how good she is. But she definitely becomes more extraneous as time goes on as a character.
1: And she was originally discussed to play Carmella, right?
0: Uh, that's that's something she has talked about. Chase says that that was never something he wanted to do because you know she had already played and the motherly good fellas, right? right. Yes, exactly. So why do that? As it was, he was already fighting against this idea that half the cast was going to be people who'd been in Goodfellas. That's one of the reasons Frank Vincent was the runner-up to play Uncle Junior, and he mainly didn't get the part because they had too many Goodfellas actors
1: already. Do you think um, when when you when you know, when, when you worked on this book, when did, when you watched all the episodes again? Did you find yourself like, thinking it was a better show than when you first watched it? That it was a different show? What, what you know, watching it again, whatever, 15, 20 years later. And I'm sure you watched episodes. You know, in the interim, yeah. what 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 was different this time versus watching it? Because I I, I think everybody this is in this book, you know, the success. of This book, first of all, it's a great book, but secondly, I think it shows that there's a real appetite for. It. And I think a lot of people watched it again here in the last few months because of the anniversary. You know, I find that the that the first season is first seasons. I think of television are weird, but you know, I find the show hasn't hasn't aged poorly at all. It's as, it's it's as good as is is it's ever been when I watched it again. I was surprised. You know, and how much deeper and and, and layered it is. It's it's amazing the chase pulled it off. It really is.
0: What I found was when you watch a show the first time, especially a serialized show like this, you're kind of playing along. You're playing this guessing game of what's going to happen next, what's going to happen next. I wonder who's going to get whacked this right. week. I wonder if the and so then you get frustrated when that doesn't happen, or when something else happens, or when you're or when the exact thing you've been predicting happens, you can be underwhelmed too. So there's a lot of times, especially on a show like this, where they deliberately went against what they figured the audience was going to be expecting, and so you'd get disappointed by that at the time. This time around, I knew everything, so I didn't have to play the guessing game, and I could just focus on what was actually happening. And so, for instance, in Season 4, there's this long arc where Carmilla develops a crush on Furio, and Furio develops one on her, and you wonder if anything's going to happen with it. And nothing happens. Like, they, they get close a couple times, and one or the other backs away, and he even has a chance to maybe kill Tony, and he doesn't take it, and he runs away to Italy, and that's it. And, you know, in 2002, when I was watching that, I was so annoyed. Like, why did we spend a whole season on that? This time around, going in knowing that nothing was going to come of it, I was able to focus on sort of moment-to-moment what's going on with Carmela, what's going on with Furio. And it works so much better as this emotional story of her desperately looking for this outlet in her life, and it still doesn't work out. And you have to be as frustrated as her to appreciate why she then kicks Tony out of the house at the end of that season, so that's a story that played a whole lot better second time around.
1: Well, you know, and, and that's uh, obviously the ending, which we could talk about in a minute, is most famous for that. But even it was the the Russians and Pine Barons, like they wouldn't give you Furio as a good example. You know, Chase wouldn't give you what you wanted as an audience sometimes, which I think was smart. Like you, 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 you like sometimes in life, things just sort of you know you didn't see Silvio kill uh, Adriana. Sometimes there were just things that Chase wouldn't give you as, as a viewer.
0: Yeah, and some of that was just he was, he'd was he been working in TV for a long time and felt like network TV was too conditioned to hold the audience's hand, and he hated doing that. Right. But sometimes he just wasn't interested. Like, he, you know, with The Rapist, he feels like when Melfi says no to Tony, that's the end of the story, and you don't need to go on any more than that. You know, the Russian was just kind of a means to an end to get those guys into the Pine Barrens. He didn't care. Um but it's funny that Adriana one was less about uh, trying to deny the audience than him realizing he liked Adriana too much and didn't want to show it. Like he didn't want to actually see her die, right. even though he knew that they had written the story to the point where he had she had to be killed, uh, and that wound up being a headache because you had a lot of fans saying, "Oh, well, it didn't happen on camera. Maybe, maybe Sylvia will let her go. Maybe we'll see her back next season." So there, there was a lot of that.
1: Do you find that you know? Uh... It's interesting with with, with Chase, and do uh, you think you have a six or seven part interview with him at the end of the seven book. Parts, seven yeah. part right so which is which is actually really it's the first thing I read. It was really good. I just wonder, like is Chase at the point in his life now? I know he's doing sort of the the prequel movie, and like you know, I think Coppola it took him a while to get there to realize that Godfathers where he's going to be Lucas the same way Star wars going to be his life. Peter Jackson, I think, is sort of with that now. Do you think that Chase just sort of realizes now this is what I'm going to be, this is what I'm going to be defined by, and has embraced it, or is he is he always been comfortable with the Sopranos, or has he tried to move away from it?
0: No, I don't think he's tried to move away from it. He's tried to do a few things since then. He made this movie not fade away, which I think is pretty good. But yeah, Gandolfini's really in it too, right? Yeah, yeah, he is. It's one. It's one of the last things Jim did, and he's really good in it. Basically, you know, playing uh, Chase's father, right. which was a nice sort of full circle touch. Um, and then he tried to develop this you know uh birth of Hollywood mini series for h b o but they said it was too expensive and at a certain point he's getting older it's just you know he doesn't have the the endurance to go and make another t v show so you know this movie might be his his last thing. I have no idea, but it's he's so protective of the sopranos because he knows it's the best thing he ever did, and I don't think he would want to try to mess with the legacy he doesn't need the money, he doesn't need the attention. So he wouldn't just do this as a cash-in-product project. I think he has a real story to tell here, and I'm I'm hopeful it will be a good one.
1: Do you think there's any show that has as many sort of uh, uh, notable secondary characters? I mean, we could tell, you know, whether it's Artie or Christopher, who's not really a secondary character, or Uncle Junior or Polly, or Pussy or, you know, uh, uh, or I mean, we could, we could do it forever. I mean, Peter Riegert's character. I mean, yeah. There's just so many layers. I, I can't think of a show. Maybe you could where there's so many characters that you remember that are vital, that you can quote. When you see them, you kind of laugh. You, feel, uh, uh, you know, Bobby, it doesn't, we could do this. I mean, it's, to me, that's sort of the enduring thing. Once you get past Gandolfini and Falco, who are unbelievable, is the amount of characters that they make. And by the way, it's not a 22-episode season that they jam in there. That's, that, I think, is sort of, you know, it's unrivaled, I think, of television history.
0: I mean I would say the wire probably has as much depth yeah. and that that's maybe that's maybe a more egalitarian show where like you could follow anybody for a long time and it would be just as good whereas if you spend a long time on sopranos away from tony a mistake has been made. Uh, true but I know, mean like, it,
1: that that's true. Yeah, that's true. I guess maybe the simpsons too would be one where there's so many, you know, it, it's different. Yeah, but there's so the many Simpsons
0: d- for sure cuz they've right. been doing it forever and Springfield has a million people. But definitely like it was so much fun rewatching the show and being reminded even really minor characters like there's this stand-up comedian that per- you see him pre-performs at the retirement home oh yeah and then he performs being in a couple other places and he's always terrible, he's terrible right in such a funny way i love him
1: do you think which which season to you was the best if you if you if you had to rank the seasons
0: In terms of, like, story arc, season one is the best, because you're never going to get a better uh, conflict in terms of family versus family than Tony's mother trying to kill him. And Nancy Marchand was so great on the show, and it it lost something when when she died. Uh, But in terms of just sort of, like, depth and one episode after another, I would probably go with the last one, just because there's so much there as you know, Chase is kind of ripping Tony apart and laying all of his sins and everybody else's sins bare and you know, killing off characters one by one. It's just really, really incredible and you know, tough to sit through at times, but great.
1: You know what's funny is when I watch some of them again is when I watched them the first time, you were talking about this earlier, the first time I watched the last season, I hated AJ's character so much because I think it was getting in the way of sort of the other stuff that you wanted to see. When you watch it again now, and I saw Chase remark about this in your interviews as well, you actually have, I have more sympathy for AJ Soprano than I did 12 years ago, whenever the last season, 10 years ago, whenever the last season was on, I, you know, I hated him at the time, but watching it again, I felt differently.
0: Yeah, I mean, he's a spoiled kid. Yeah, he's, he's not that smart. He's a, he's a dummy, yeah. kind of confused in life. But look at the parents he had. Look at the young <laughs> <Right, laughs> he, right, right. he came from. Uh, you know, and I think, like, some people just wanted him to be like Michael Corleone and follow in the, in the family business, and that's not at all what he was built for, um... He's not one of my favorite characters on no, the show, but either. he's a very—he's a really interesting and I think ultimately tragic character, a lot of
1: them are. Why do we... I actually don't care as much as other Sopranos people do about it, and I read your, your chapter on it, your debate and talking to Chase about it. Why do people care so much if Tony Soprano is alive or dead?
0: Because people want answers. They want closure. They want to understand what it was that they watched. And so, and no TV show had ever ended this way before in such an ambiguous fashion. You know, I mean, you'd had shows canceled on a cliffhanger or something, but this was different. This was deliberately, they knew it was going to be the last episode, and they went this way, and they'd been following the story all these years, and they felt, all right, well, I want to know, what does this mean? What happened? Uh, and Chase won't say, and even, you know, as he winds up saying more to us than he ever has before about his intentions behind the ending, but he still doesn't really get into what happened. Because he doesn't think that that's the point of the scene, and he, he says you know it's not a puzzle to be solved, but you know people like to watch shows as puzzles. they like to sort of predict what's going to happen ahead of time. if you're watching a mystery, you want to guess who done it. If you're watching Game of Thrones, you want to predict who's going to wind up on the on the Iron Throne and who's going to get killed, all of that uh, it's just it's the way we've been conditioned to absorb stories right or wrong.
1: If Chase could have one Mulligan for the series again, would it be. Not doing the footage of uh, Nancy Marchand after she died, or would it be would it be something else?
0: Sounds probably like that. I mean, he uh, there was a few times over the course of the interviews where he's expressed regret about this thing or that thing, but I remember specifically bringing up the uh, the digital Nancy Marchand. That was rough. and he just put his he put his face in his hands, and you know, because he knows it's every single shot of that scene, she has a different hairstyle. Because they had to borrow footage from so many episodes just to sort of cobble it together, and the funny thing is, when you go back and you watch season two, the last one she filmed before she died, there's a scene she has with Tony in the episode where Richie gets killed. That is such a perfect goodbye moment between those two characters, uh, where he he trips and he stumbles while well, out laughs, of the house, right? and she laughs at him. Mm. Like that's that's the note that the show should, the relationship should have ended on, uh, and I don't think it needed anything more. And he could have just shown that as a flashback in the funeral episode, and he sort of acknowledged in retrospect, he could have done that. But the funny thing is, if he was making the show now, the technology exists that he could have done it very well. You know, you look at something like Rogue One, and they brought Peter Cushing back to True. life decades later for a whole bunch of scenes.
1: Uh, let, me, let me ask you a few current TV stuff here before I let you go. It seems to me, and, and maybe I'm wrong, you pay way more attention than I do. You're obviously the chief critic of Rolling Stone. In terms of drama, network dramas, it, I feel like we're at the worst point in television history. I don't know anybody who talks about any. There's some comedies, you know, people watch Blackish, whatever. But I don't know anyone who's talking about a single dr- dramatic uh, show on television, right? On, on network television, right now.
0: I mean, there's this is us, which I, I mostly like, right. stop watching at this point. But, but I that, like that's, that's played, the one right. kind of standard bearer for sure. But beyond that, no, it's they're not really trying anymore because I think they've realized that they can't play the same game that cable and streaming can, and so they've got to just do their own, you know, procedural thing. And some of those shows are pretty good, but they're not aspiring to what a Sopranos did, what a Breaking Bad did, what you know, even something now like Better Call Saul does. Uh, so it's more like things you have on while you're folding the laundry.
1: But why can't, you know, so Better Call Saul, I think, is a good example. Obviously, Breaking Bad was on AMC, whatever, but you know, when I watch a a Better Call Saul episode, it could be on network television. Why doesn't a network president hire somebody smart and have them do that kind of show on network television? Especially now where the ratings are are segmented, it's not important to get a huge rating. Why is it that difficult? It it continues to be baffling to me. I, I don't get it.
0: I think because at this point the audience it's it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. The audience has become conditioned to not expect those kinds of shows on network TV. So in the rare occasions where somebody tries them, nobody comes
1: because yeah. they don't
0: trust the networks enough to do them.
1: What's the best what's the two or three best shows right now on Netflix? Is the is Russian Doll good?
0: Russian doll's fantastic Russian doll's one of my favorite things I've seen in a couple of years. Uh, that was just a real knockout surprise from Natasha Leone, who I've always liked as an actress, but uh, I've always felt like you know no one's quite using her as well as she could and so she went and she wrote this thing herself and you know it's great that's a lot of fun um I'm trying to think what else. In term, you're t- talking about in terms of Netflix
1: yeah, I, 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 right now? I, I, yeah, anything, any of the streaming stuff, whether Tulu, Netflix, Amazon, anything that anything that, that you know, we're, that people are, are not watching or, or may want to watch. That I, I, I think, um Good.
0: No, Russian doll is definitely the best mm-hmm. thing streaming has done in a little while. For sure, BoJack Horseman is the best show on Netflix, um, and probably always will be. I mean, you never know, but that's that's a wonderful show and one of the few Netflix shows that I think really holds up to the top of the you know you know two thousands you know pay cable classic shows. And in, just in terms of a recent one that debuted last week, uh, Hulu has the show called Pen Fifteen. Yeah, I've seen you t- tweet really about this. Re- yeah. It's really ridiculous, but also sort of surprisingly smart. It's a show like two thirty-one-year-old actresses play themselves as thirteen-year-olds, and everyone else in the cast is an actual middle schooler, and they're you know they're wearing makeup and braces and bad haircuts and all of that. And it's it's kind of a ridiculous comedy sketch, but then it goes deeper than that, and I wound up really liking that a lot.
1: Can I tell you, I, I am I am horrified at the idea of ABC having an MIPD Blue reboot with with. Theo Sipowitz is the lead of these. Oh, what? 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 What is? What the fuck is? Who is? The, who? Who greenlights this stuff?
0: It's a brand name. That's what. That's what a lot of the entertainment business is now. It's what intellectual property do we own the rights to that we can put out there where people will recognize the name and be more likely to look at it. But what thirty year old is uh,
1: going to care about that? I mean, am I wrong or? I don't.
0: I don't know. But you know, the hope is that they'll get a bunch of forty year olds to tune in and enough of them. Uh, to make it work, the problem is like the guy who made NYPD Blue. The two people who made NYPD Blue special are Dennis Franz, who is retired from acting, and so they they kill off Sipowicz in this pilot. Oh, I understand. Do they really? And CEO's investigating his murder. Yeah, oh, It really yeah. doesn't sound like a great idea. And David Milch, the co-creator of the show, who wrote all of the great stuff, who is not involved in this at all, and is you know off making the Deadwood movie. So if you don't have those two guys, it's just another cop show where you kill off one of the great characters of all time before he even appears. So I I, I don't have a super optimistic feeling about this.
1: I understand that Roseanne did well before it got crazy the first couple of weeks, and Will and Grace seems like yeah. there's been an audience. For, but enough with these, you know, revivals. Like I, I don't, I don't, you know, nobody wants to see Murphy Brown again. Nobody cares about Sipwitz's kid. Nobody cares. I, I don't, you know, I, I understand why they do it because it's like you said, it's easy. There's a brand name, but like at some point you actually have to have some original television or you're going to completely no, run out of ideas.
0: It's, it's, a very, it's a very depressing thing, and most of them have not been that good because you know it's like a TV show is the product of a time and a place in the lives of the people who make it and the people who are watching it and the characters on the show, and you start changing all of that, and it doesn't work as well. So I'm I'm concerned.
1: If, if, if Gandolfini lived... Right, we just you know, lived and, and was alive today. Do you think that Chase would have at some point brought this these people together for some short run, half a season on HBO or a movie? I mean, that was always rumored. Well,
0: one, you- one thing he talked to me about the day after the show ended um, was one. He had two ideas. One was what, the movie that he's now going to go make, which is mm-hmm. you know Tony Tony's father and uncle and everybody else back in the 1960s in the heyday of the Jersey Mob. Uh, and the other one was maybe he would go back and like tell a story set sometime during the events of the series. Like here's an untold adventure of Tony and Polly Walnuts or something, right, you know, that story, took yeah. place between season three and season four. Um, so it wouldn't have shocked me if he'd done that, but I also, I, but I also wouldn't have expected him to, just because among other things, I think Gandolfini was so happy to be done playing that character, which made him famous and made him rich, and you know, did all these things for him. But it was also really, really hard for him to play. And if you knew, if you saw Jim when the show was being made and you saw Jim after the show was done, it was like night and day because this huge weight had been lifted off of him. And I think it would have been really hard to convince him to come back and do it one more time.
1: And one last thing I, the the other performance that uh, we talked about, the Falco, the other performance that's, when you watch it now, is, is more unbelievable every time you see it is Michael Imperioli, is Christopher, is one of the great supporting performances in the history of television. It's, it's, it, incredible he embraces the stupidity of christopher and yet like he's almost smart enough to, to 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 realize that you know what his life is it's 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 one of the great performances ever i think in television
0: it, it really is and you could tell just hearing chase talk about christopher much they loved writing for that character and part of it was because christopher wanted to be a writer and so they could relate right. to that but part of it was just they saw how good imperioli was uh, and they kept giving him more and more uh, and he you know he has one of the great tragic arcs of the entire series
1: and i saw chase in the interviews in the interview with you guys say essentially for him the show was over once christopher died he felt like you know in a lot of ways the show was already done at that point he, he liked him so much and probably imperioli so much i would guess
0: Yeah, and he said, like, he kept Christopher alive for years after he probably should have killed him, because in the actual mob, someone with the history of screw-ups and addiction that Christopher had would have been taken out years before, family or not, but they just liked him too much.
1: Oh, the book is The Sopranos Sessions. Uh, Alan Sepol joins me again. The conversation with Chase is in there. You go episode by episode. If you're a Sopranos fan, or if you, by the way, if you're just going to start watching the series, it's a good companion to have. The book is great. Alan, thanks so much. I'm sure we'll talk to you down the line.
0: Thanks, Kirk. All right,
1: Alan. We'll see you. Thanks so much.